And let me invite you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to the letter of 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll find it on page 1179 of your Bible. And we'll actually be beginning this morning, I should say, with chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. We've just completed chapter 4. So chapter 5 of 1 Timothy 1179 in your Bible. Over the last three sermons, uh, we've seen the work of pastoral ministry. I hope you've seen this with me. As Paul lays out for Timothy, especially in chapter 4, 6 through 16, we've considered the pastor's character, his calling, and his methods. In taking our time through those verses, I hope we were all encouraged in our walk with Christ Studying the scriptural vision for pastors enables all of us, I hope, to see our pastor, our great pastor, our savior better. It helps us also to know what we are to expect from the pastors of the church. And there are so many practical lessons for our own lives, regardless of whether or not God calls us to ordained ministry in the church. Now, today's passage is, I think, the perfect transition uh, from that study. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, is technically still about the work of ministry, of pastoral ministry. So it goes along with all we've been seeing at the end of chapter 4. These two verses we're about to read offer real instructions from Paul to Timothy about doing uh, pastoral ministry. However, these two verses also sort of take the next step for us. They move us forward into a much longer section where Paul is going to talk about the life of the church, the whole church, the whole body, and how we're to relate to each other in the church in love, including how to treat families, how to treat widows, how to treat the elders of the church, how servants are to think, how rich people in the church are to think. Now, at the heart of all this instruction is a very deceptively simple but profound truth. All Christians are part of God's family and should treat one another as family. On the one hand, that's very easy to say. We can quite easily, and many of us have done this, we've trained ourselves to call each other brother and sister. But what does it mean to actually function as a family together? Do we back those words up with real meaning? And we might add, what does it mean to be a family at a time like this? At a time when the whole notion of family is being redefined or even discarded entirely. Behind all the questions, behind them all, and standing over them all, I hope through this sermon section you'll become aware of something greater than all our questions and answers. At the heart of this discussion stands not just an idea, but a glorious person, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He says, he says that all his followers are his body, his sacred body, his undivided body. That reality is already fully realized right now in heaven. It is a mystery that angels long to look into. 
and we are already there spiritually with him. We are already there together with him in heaven, one in Christ's body, one in Christ's blood. So the questions we consider today and in the weeks following are not just about how do we do community together or how we might love one another better in the local church. Of course, those are wonderful questions, legitimate questions. But let's not lose sight of the bigger question. Since we are already fully united to his glorious person, how then can that glorious heavenly reality be shadowed here in the veil of tears? The quest for church unity is not, is not in the final analysis about witnessing to the culture or even comforting ourselves. It is about his glory revealed and manifested on the earth. As John so wonderfully reminds us in his letters, the darkness, he writes, is passing away and the true light is already shining. Therefore, John says, I write a new commandment, which is true in him and true in you. Whoever says he is in this new light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. The risen, the glorified Jesus is building a new family in the world, a family of love and a family of light. Timothy now as pastor is to coordinate himself to that heavenly mission. And, he's, and as he is to lead the family of God, he is to lead them in love and respect, treating each one as family. Please stand then as we hear God's word. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2 of 1 Timothy. The Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul writes these words. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we give thanks that we can this morning call you Father because of the adoption that is ours through our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we hear in your word that you are building a great family, an eternal family, and uniting us in your son. Help us now to receive that teaching with joy and to learn this day to treat one another with the love of family. This we pray you would do in our hearts, despite our wickedness and our slowness to hear. Do it by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Timothy has come to say hard things. He's come to say hard things, unpleasant things. This letter begins with, you might remember, Paul commanding Timothy to silence the false teachers in Ephesus. And in that same opening chapter, Paul does not hesitate to use strong language himself, strong condemnation when speaking of these men. 
In fact, he describes them as men who have, quote, wandered away from the truth and know nothing. They have, Paul says, shipwrecked their faith. And Paul has even turned two of them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Surely then, surely, Paul anticipates that Timothy will also speak strong words to these men. And I'm, I'm sure that he did. Just the public reading of this letter would have been a strong word of rebuke for those false teachers. However, it would be a mistake, I think a very serious mistake, on our part to assume that everyone in Ephesus needed this heavy treatment, this sort of heavy hand of rebuke. Instead, Paul instructs Timothy in these verses to adjust his words to the need of the person in front of him. In this way, Timothy is to follow Christ's example. Jesus, you'll remember, could be incredibly gentle, taking the infants in his arms. He could also be a little scary when his zeal was overturning tables. Timothy is to exhibit this same depth of spirit and ministry. He is to approach people in real family love and respect and tune his words accordingly. Up until today, our focus has been very much on the formal public work of the pastor. Last week, we looked at his use of scripture, especially in the context of public worship. But today, as we shift into the last part of 1 Timothy, Paul's focus moves to family dynamics of the church, to how we relate to each other personally, to how we meet one another's needs outside of the worship service, and to some degree within it. Timothy is to set the example by exercising a ministry of private exhortation, lovingly suited to each person's need. Timothy is not just to preach, but to come alongside the members of the Ephesian church with a word appropriate to each person as father, mother, brother, sister. Even though verses 1 and 2 that I just read to you, they're just one sentence in English and in Greek. For our study today, I want to break Paul's command here down into two parts. First, notice with me that Timothy is to give the people of God the word they need to hear. The word they need to hear. The pastor of Ephesus is not just a public figure standing at a distance. He is a man who knows his flock and interacts with them privately as well. With the false teachers, with the false teachers, a harsh, maybe even public rebuke was needed. But in most cases, Timothy is not to use the pulpit to chastise his members. Rather, he's to go to them and come alongside them. Second, Timothy is to give the people of God that word that they need in a spirit of family love. As he goes to them, Paul commands here that he remember that the church of Jesus is also a family. As the creational family has mothers and fathers, so does the church family. As Timothy offers this private ministry of counsel, 
He is to do so with nuance, with respect, and with family love. He must adorn the truth with love. Now let's look at these two commands and think about them together. So first, notice with me, Timothy is to give the word they need to hear, the word they need to hear. Paul writes, do not rebuke harshly an older man, but encourage him. Timothy is then told to encourage the other members of the congregation as well, fathers, brothers, mothers, sisters. Now, it's important, I think, not to underestimate what Paul is saying here. It's easy to pass over verses like this and give really no thought to them. Don't underestimate what Paul is saying here. This is one of the many places where the New Testament is clear that pastors are to counsel as well as to preach. Now, in saying that, I am not, I hope, uh, taking anything away from those who train specifically as counselors. I'm not using the word counseling here in a sort of professional sense or a medical sense. I simply mean that pastors, to use uh, the Puritan wording, are to have the care of souls, not simply from the pulpit, but in personal interactions with their members. Our convictions as a church on this are very strong. For example, this is part of why our personal cell phone numbers are in the bulletin and not just simply an office number answered by an administrator. And so Paul expects Timothy to know the congregation and anticipates that he will be speaking encouragement into the lives of fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. But realizing that should bring up another question. What does it mean to speak like this? What is he to speak? What does Paul mean here when he says that he's to offer words of encouragement? I think it's important here for you to know that the word encourage, you can just sort of underline that for a moment in your mind. The word encourage in verse 1, as in don't harshly rebuke, but rather encourage, that word is not technically encourage. The word here is actually the word we've been looking at now for several weeks throughout chapter 4. It is the word exhortation, if you want to be really technical. And several translations of the Bible, the NIV, for example, simply use that word, exhort, exhort them. The ESV, the Bible we use here, they've chosen encourage because that is a legitimate definition. It's not a... Not a error on their part. And I think they chose it because they wanted to make clear that we're not talking here about a sermon. We're not talking here about the public exhortation, but rather about private words of encouragement, private words of exhortation. And maybe that's why the ESV shifted and chose encouragement to express that. But here's the point. The word is exhortation, and that word is really helpful. And I want you to see it. Because the word is so flexible in the Bible. It's intentionally a vague word. And so it's the perfect word here to use to capture the many forms counsel can take. In scripture, if you read through and find this word throughout the New Testament, uh, the word exhortation can mean a loving rebuke. Or it can mean a word of just pure encouragement. Just a word of thank you or I appreciate you. 
It can be the best thing anyone has ever said to you in the church, and it can be absolutely the worst and hardest thing you've ever had to listen to. Now, in a moment, I'll get back to Timothy and to how pastors particularly are to fulfill this command. But I want to remind you this morning that this ministry of private exhortation is one to which we are all called as believers, every person here. Most of us will never give a sermon. We will never do the public gospel exhortation in the church. Last week, we saw how the synagogue and then the church learning really from the synagogue had this pattern of an elder who would come up and read very solemnly the scriptures and then a rabbi or teacher or someone appointed by those elders would then come up and give the exhortation. Most of us will never do that. But the Bible does call us all to a ministry of private exhortation. The Bible commands this explicitly using the exact same word in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. The author there writes these words. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author here is concerned that these believers be warned about the dangers of sin. And this was the task they were to accomplish in one another's life, not just from the pulpit. And later on in that same letter, using the same language, Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider, let us think about how to stir one another up to love and good works. How can I do it? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but exhorting or encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, here's why I told you about that word exhort. It's not just a boring detail. In Hebrews 3, exhorting means something tough. Speak to that brother so that sin doesn't take hold in his life or that sister. Exhort one another so that you will not be hardened in sin. I don't know exactly what the author of Hebrews had in mind there, but it sounds like a strong word, doesn't it? A word of admonition, a word of conviction, when we feel we're being hardened. But then notice how the same author in Hebrews 10 can say the same kind of thing, exhort each other, but this time it's not a word of rebuke. Rather, it's a stirring one another up to good works. And of course, one of the ways we do that is simply by, be by being present in the services of the church. We are not to neglect these opportunities for stirring each other up to good works. As we together this morning and this evening, as we recite scripture together, as we pray together, and I think especially as we sing together, we are exhorting one another. We are counseling one another. If you've been in the church for a long time, as I have been by the grace of God being raised in it, you've had this situation happen to you before. You're singing a hymn like it is well with my soul, one of those. And you look over in the pews and there is that person who's just gotten the diagnosis, who's just lost someone really close to them. And as you watch them sing, you are rebuked. You are encouraged and you are thoroughly exhorted. Afterward, you don't know if the exhortation was more of a rebuke or an encouragement, 
but you know it hit the targets. But it's not just during worship. In our life together, we're always to be exhorting each other to good things. Countless encouragements are offered every time we get together. Sometimes we rebuke each other even, quite by accident. This has happened to me. I know it's happened to many of you where in the presence of someone, they're sharing their sin struggle, and you feel bad about your sin struggle and decide at that moment, I need to ask for prayer too. Or maybe you share your testimony of how God brought you to himself. And by doing so, we exhort the people around us to trust in God and to glorify him. Whether we realize it or not, our lives and words are impacting the people around us. Even something as simple as our attendance at worship can provoke something and someone to good. We all then have this ministry of private exhortation. Maybe the most beautiful expression of this truth comes to us in a letter that Paul wrote to the same church, the church of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says what? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Timothy then is to lead the people of God in a church-wide ministry of private encouragement, encouraging one another to trust, to repent, to believe, and maybe above all, to just endure. And that leads us to the second part of the commandment. Timothy's to speak the word they need to hear, and we're all called to do that, whatever the exhortation looks like in the moment. But Paul adds that he must do this in a spirit of family with real love and real sensitivity. He must speak as a brother, and he must speak as a son not as a Lord and not as a bully. To drive this home, Paul speaks in the original Greek in a kind of rhythm here. Mothers and fathers sounds alike, and so does brothers and sisters. So Paul says to him, remember, Timothy, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, and he would have heard that poetry there. When dealing with the older men, remember Timothy's late 20s, early 30s, when dealing with the older men, Timothy is to treat them like fathers. He's to avoid strong rebukes and certainly not in public unless absolutely necessary. Instead, he is to take them aside and encourage them in their faith. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That, I think, if you're young, one of our young people here this morning, that is one of the greatest promises I could give to you. Let me repeat it. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Surely this command applies not just to the people, though, not just to our young people, but to the pastor as well, in this case, Timothy. 
As the older men are to be fathers, so the younger men are to be like brothers. The image here, of course, is that men of around the same age, are they're doing life together. They're experiencing similar joys, frustrations, and temptations. Timothy is to take these men as his siblings. He can probably be more direct with them. I personally have found that to be the case, that with the men my own age, I'm, I'm even more direct than with some of the older men, where I try to be a little more careful and respectful. The issue here, I think, with brothers is not so much respect and honoring them as older, but rather authenticity and friendship. At least in my experience, that's what I find in this word brother, that men my age or around my age more look to me for that, for the authenticity, and that's what we should be offering to one another. As we treat the older members with respect, so brothers need to lean on each other. They need to lean on each other as they go through the same things in life. Now, if Paul had been a Roman pagan, he's not. But if he had been a Roman pagan, he would have stopped there. Brothers and fathers, good enough. The Romans didn't think mothers were at all important. It was all about the patriarch. It was all about the male leader, and that was it. But of course, he is not a Roman pagan. Rather, he is a Jewish Christian. And so he's keenly aware, keenly aware of the fifth commandment, the first commandment with a promise Honor your father and your mother. So Timothy is to treat the women of the church using the exact same pattern. The older women are to be treated with the respect of a mother, nothing less. Because Timothy learned the faith from his mother, Eunice, this would have been setting the bar very high indeed. Pastors who cannot treat women, pastors who cannot treat women with dignity are not fit for office. It's that simple. If you can't write, blog, preach, podcast, or email without using inappropriate language about women, you need to resign. The standard is clear. As you would talk about your own mother, as you, Timothy, would talk about your own mother, so you are to talk about the older women in the church. When speaking of the young women, Paul adds a strong exhortation of his own. Treat the young women, he writes, as sisters, and then he adds, with all purity, with complete purity. What makes this stand out, of course, is that everyone else, father, mothers, brothers, have just been named. There's no extra words. But here Paul feels compelled to add a strong addition. And I think we all know why. Timothy is a man. And he's a young man. His relationship to the young women of the church is crucial to his reputation. So Paul calls on him to do something that is incredibly difficult. But listen, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. If God commands it, it cannot be impossible. He tells Timothy, and this is what I'm telling the young men in the congregation right now, to train himself to see the young women as people and as sisters. Now, that is not easy for men. When I speak to men privately about their struggles with online material, I often ask them to do something that might sound shocking or strange. It may shock some of you, but I think it's really important. I ask that man I'm talking to about his struggle 
to give a name, to give a name to the person he's been watching. I want them to begin to realize that she has a name, that she has a father, that she has a brother. I want to move her in their heart from object to person. And of course, nothing does that for a man like seeing a woman as his sister. In a similar way, the pastor and all the men of the church are to train ourselves to look at the women of the congregation as sisters. Of course, this doesn't mean that Paul was opposed to young people in the church dating and getting married. A sister in the Lord can become a wife in the Lord at some point. Maybe Timothy eventually married a woman in this congregation. We don't know. The point is not to keep legitimate romance off the table. The point is to conduct ourselves in all purity. In the Journal of Biblical Counseling, it's a product of CCF, Michael Gambola, a counselor, writes this encouragement, especially to Christian men. He says, Christians are to live in the hope of what is genuinely possible. Since this is a written command, Paul thinks that it is possible that Timothy can, with God's help, actually view women as family and not as objects of sexual desire. Jesus treated the women around him as mothers and sisters and aunts and cousins. And rather than just keeping him as an impossible act to follow, we can instead take comfort that what is true of him will also be true of us. So Timothy is to join to his public ministry, a ministry of private exhortation. And that ministry must be patient and kind, and it must be tailored to each kind of person in the congregation. Paul puts this so beautifully, so powerfully in 2 Timothy 2. I think these are words uh, that would call many men who are in ministry today out of ministry. Would I hope cause them to leave it if they were to take these words seriously? Listen to what Paul wrote. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the kind of private ministry of souls that Timothy and each one of us is called to. So here's the point. We're all called to exhort one another. All God's people have a ministry of private exhortation. As Hebrew reminds us, even our decisions not to attend services at church has a possible impact on others. Countless opportunities are lost to us because we simply don't realize that they're happening or care enough to seize them as they pass by. So today's sermon is a call it's a call, first of all, to wake up, wake up and realize that you have this ministry, that your words and actions influence the body of Christ around you. They influence this Christian family. This is especially important, I think, for the youngest among us and the oldest among us. Both the elderly and the young tend to downplay their role in the life of the church. They think to themselves, well, I'm just too old to have an impact. Or on the other side, I'm too young 
to make any real difference. And yet I want to say to you again, you are called to stir those around you up to good works. Once we realize we've been given this ministry, we are next called, along with Timothy, to approach one another as family, to tune our exhortation to the person. And so I hope as this sermon is a wake-up call, it is also a call to prayer, that we might ask God to enable us to approach others in the right ways as family in the Lord. Many of you have sat with me in my office as I give counsel and listen to you and am blessed by the things you have to say and what may not always be obvious. And I don't want to distract you when you come visit me, so I hesitated to tell you this, but it's true, is that all through my meetings with you privately, I'm whispering in the back of my prayer, in mind prayers to God for the Holy Spirit so that what I say to you will be what you need to hear. And what I'm encouraging you to do is do that. You're going to have conversations when I'm done here in a minute. What are you going to do with them? How are they going to be used? In that spirit, as we close, I want to offer one last piece of just public exhortation. As you think about the kind of exhortation you could offer to someone else in this room, I want to urge you, I want to encourage you to focus on the ministry of encouragement. Of course, please don't misunderstand, there's a place for rebuke. There's a place to challenge each other. But I'm increasingly concerned, I'm deeply concerned, that we be encouraged, especially at this particular time. Please do not misread our cultural moments. Because our culture is highly promiscuous, Christians make the mistake of thinking that we live in a kind of loose and easy culture. In fact, we live in a culture of hyper-judgment and criticism that is masquerading as easygoing. If you doubt this, look how easy it is to get counseled by your friends and family or by whole swaths of society. Fifteen minutes on social media will enable you to quickly discern that having abandoned God's ten rules our culture has written thousands of new and burdensome commandments. Or consider this, almost everyone today in this room is being recorded or watched almost all the time. Everyone who has a smartphone today, every one of you that has a smartphone, is already carrying around with you a camera, a video recorder, and a movie screen that would rival anything that was available 40 years ago. So, brothers and sisters, remember, the person you're about to speak to probably already feels that they're a bad mom, that they're a bad dad, that they're too fat, that they don't travel enough, that they're not doing enough for the environment, that they're not doing enough for the church, and all, in general, they're an all-around failure. I believe that most Christians need encouragement more than anything else, especially now. So... Even if you need to ask some challenging questions, and there's a place for that, consider even then beginning with words of encouragement or even with a hug if it's appropriate. Treat them like family and remember that one day you will want and you will need the same thing from them. And never forget, never forget, and this is the most important thing, 
remember, always remember that this is what Christ has done for you. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The God of heaven and earth insisted on adopting you into his family, not just saving you, but adopting you. In fact, his love was so wildly extravagant that he has made you and I co-heirs with his son so that the rewards of Christ, rewards that are unimaginable for us to have, actually come upon us in Christ. To make this adoption possible, our elder brother went to the cross to seal our adoption papers in his own blood and to bring us into the eternal life of the triune God. In a family like that, in a family defined by such incredible love, such boundless love, such timeless love, how can we not go to one another as father, mother, as brother, sister? When the Lord of hosts has come to us as a brother and as a friend, how can we not go as family to one another? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your love for us exceeds our imaginative cap capabilities. We simply cannot take in what you have done for us in your son. And if we live in the joy of that, if we glimpse even a little of that, we will go to each other with love. We will so delight in our adoption, so delight in what is ours freely through Christ, that we will go in the spirit of joy and love to each other. So, Father, impress that upon us this day. Help the people of this church to speak to each other in psalms and songs. Help them to speak to each other in words of love of comfort, of encouragement, and even of gentle rebuke. Help us to stir one another up to good works. Now, Father, as we come to this table, we pray that we would be encouraged. Our needs are many, our illnesses, our struggles, our fears. And yet this table says that your son sits among us, that he is with us, and that he eats with us. Give us reverent fear and give us wonderful joy as we come to this table, we pray, and we ask it in your son's name. Amen.